I came into this work very focused on studying climate change and environmental issues. I quit my job as a high school administrator to go back to get a PhD in environmental psychology, and that was my goal, was understanding how we can use psychology to solve these problems. So I started out just thinking, I'm going to use psychology like a sword to solve environmental problems. And then once I got into, okay, I've got this great idea for a program, how do we evaluate it? How do we know if it worked, how it worked, how to improve it? And then I started realizing that those were interesting questions. And now I spend probably as much, if not more of my time, looking at how do we measure the impact of media? How do we measure the impact of behavioral programs? Where when I went in, that wasn't what I was interested in at all. The voice you hear is that of Beth Carlin, a savvy PhD academic who, instead of focusing just on psychology, uses her astute lens to see how the media can be used to transform individuals, communities, and systems. She started the Transformational Media Lab within UC Irvine and now works at the USC Annenberg Norman Lear Center within the communications department, specializing in film and social change. Needless to say, she's the person who knows how to fix and shape any message, including environmental ones. So I'm now at the Norman Lear Center at USC, which really focuses specifically on entertainment and media, kind of traditionally defined, television, film, news. The Transformational Media Lab that I founded at UC Irvine and kind of my broader research, I define the word media and medium very broadly. So to me, a medium is a means of of communication as a way of conveying information. So to me, media isn't just television and film. Facebook, social, programs in schools. So I look at how we are telling stories, and I think we can tell stories in a lot of ways now. So I would say the work that we do at the Lear Center is very focused on our traditional conception. When you hear the word media in Hollywood, what you would think of, television, radio, film, I think kind of theoretically we tell stories in a lot of ways. We're always telling stories. And so how are we, how are we leveraging the different ways that we can communicate with each other, the mediums that we can use from the fire pit to the fourplex? And how are we using narrative strategies well? How are we framing these messages? A lot of people think of framing. There's this critique that it's manipulative um, and that, that when, you, when you apply psychological framing to a message or a story that you're somehow tricking people. And, and my counter argument to that is that there is no unframed information. Language is constitutive of reality. So anytime you are using language to communicate, you are framing that information. What I try and do is look at how we can leverage theory and our understandings around core social motives to be more successful in the ways that we do that. In our choices of what mediums we use to communicate with people, the stories we tell, and the ways that we frame that information. And then on the back end, like I was saying, how do you know whether what you're doing works? Because there's a lot of people that are doing everything I just said that are not psychologists and that don't work in universities, but they're basing their decisions on anecdote or intuition, and they don't know whether what they're doing worked or not.
And so I went into this field like that, just thinking I'm going to pull out psychological tools and apply them to the world. And then what happened was I started spending a lot more time looking at how do we know and developing and applying and furthering our methodologies. And especially in the media space, when we look at television and film and radio, it's harder to do than in the settings where we can kind of design a really tight little lab study with college students on the sixth floor of the psych department. So I look at insights that we can, that we've gained from television and film and how that could apply to any other form of communication. So I think filmmakers are such great storytellers, so many of them, that those storytelling strategies and frames and effective strategies can be used in somebody that's designing a brochure or a pamphlet or a Facebook marketing campaign as well. So I don't limit the application of what I do to traditional film and television. I think we have a lot more opportunity there. The more dimensions we add, right? Like there's a picture and then there's a moving picture and then there's a moving picture with audio or then there's audio without the picture. So there's radio. And so I think all of those are media and, and, and you can be selective in the which ones you use and in what ways. And we now live in an environment where a lot of our work is transmedia. So how can you take one story across those mediums? So how does the book interact with the website interact with the film, interact with the podcast. Do each of these have the same amount of research done already? So is there an equal amount of research in TV as a medium compared to fictional films, compared to documentaries, or is one higher stacked than another? I would say there's very little research on any of this, really empirically looking at, at the role of media and social change. What there is a lot of research on are mechanisms that can be applied most of the research on these mechanisms that can be applied are conducted on paper or online. So for example, there's a lot of research that suggests that framing information in terms of loss is more effective than framing in terms of gain. So if I want you to change your appliances, I should be more effective in, by telling you how much money you'll waste or you'd lose if you don't buy this new refrigerator versus how much you could save, right? We value what we have much more than what we don't have. So when you frame something in terms of a potential loss, people are more effect, are more likely to respond. But that has not been really, you don't see a lot of research that's tested a film with a loss versus a gain frame. You see research coming out of kind of psychological and social scientific studies that have the potential to be applied. Uh, and the research that's been done largely in media and social change is great and largely descriptive. So there are case studies. There's a lot of film and lit crit and theory. So I wouldn't say there's no research. The type of research I do, there's very little. So I'm by training an experiment, largely an experimental social psychologist. So I work at the Norman Lear Center. There's a lot that's been written about how all in the family, which Norman Lear created, has affected gender and race relations or good times or the Jeffersons. A lot of people have written about that. The type of work that I do, kind of empirically, empirical statistical analysis, there's been very little done. Nobody, when Good Times was coming out, was showing Good Times in the Minneapolis market and not in the Kansas market, and then doing a survey of people's attitudes towards gender a year out. That's, the, that's kind of the type of work that I'm trying to, to create, and so that we can really 
address the counterfactual argument. How do you know? How do you know the Jeffersons had an impact on race relations in America? What, because you think so? Okay, can we prove it? I just heard an amazing critique of the the Cosby show the other day that um, it was it was such an incredible show, yet it never once addressed racism and that that was one of its failings. That's interesting. And I would never I would never argue that the Cosby show did not have an impact on race relations in America. I believe in my heart that it did. I believe that it impacted me. I grew up with that show. My counter would just be, you don't have any evidence. There's no counterfactual. There's no world in which the Cosby show didn't exist. And that's where it's hard to study this, but we try and that's where we're trying to apply different methods. And that's what we do. A lot of the work that we do at the Lear Center, the Media Impact Project within the Lear Center is how do we study the impact of media on these important social issues? Because it's really hard to do. And some people say it's impossible. It's really hard to do, but what's the alternative? Because we're spending a lot of money on issue-based media right now. How could we not try and learn how to do it as best we can? I think it's irresponsible to not try, even though it's hard and even though we won't get it right, we can do better than our intuition. So someone that's not a scientist who may be listening to this program, what in a, in the layman sense do you do in terms of methodology just on the daily? So say you're approaching, someone approaches you with a documentary, how would you, how would you first start to come up with the questions to ask about impact? And then how do you start evaluating? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and we're all scientists. We just don't all, we didn't all make the silly decision to spend seven years in grad school. Most of us in fifth grade did like the science fair experiments, right? Like we understand that science, I mean, I think children, babies are great scientists. They, they drop the food and then is my mom going to pick it up? And then they drop it again. And like, how many times can I drop this before mom gets mad at me? Right? Like that's science is coming up with hypotheses and then testing them out. And so for, for a filmmaker or a storyteller that is telling a story with the goal of having some sort of social impact, the first question is what is the desired impact? What do I want the goal of what I'm doing to be? And then making that specific. So is there a measurable, is there a tangible measurable goal that I'm hoping to attain? So I want to open people's eyes to this issue. Okay. So my goal is to increase awareness. So I want to reach. So those metrics might be how many people can I reach? And then if it's possible to collect data on, am I seeing some sort of change in there? in their attitudes. And that's important because if my goal is to, is to open, open, change awareness, change people's attitudes towards something, then I need to think about not just my message, but also who I'm reaching out to. Cause a lot of times in issue-based media, we create these documentary films and then we screen to people that already agree with us. And so maybe you're not accomplishing that goal, but you could have a goal that my goal in making this movie is to provide a tool for my base, for them to be able to share with their communities. Then you reach out to your community, if that makes sense. So this affects not just how you tell, so asking that question of like, what is my goal? And break, and what are my goals? You might have more than one. And making those goals as specific and tangible and measurable as possible. So my goal is to change the way we think about plastics, more specific. I also really want the legislation to change. Okay, I want to support the groups and communities in the country that are working towards plastic bag bans. 
Great, that's one of your goals. How do you integrate that into the way you tell the story, who you're sharing that story with, what platforms you're putting that story on, and kind of build out from there? Do filmmakers and uh, media makers approach you with the idea already? Do they approach you when it's already done? And how much do you encourage them to pick the right medium for the message? They always have an idea. No one's ever come to me and said like, I'm thinking about making a movie about something. I don't know what, can you partner with me from ground zero? That would be super cool. That's not yet happened. If anybody wants to do that, call me. Uh, more often they're usually past pre-production. They're in production or in post. We took a call like two months ago with, with a, a film that was literally gonna be in the theaters in three weeks. And we were like, wow, there's, so little we can do right now with you. And it was unfortunate because it's a really great, huge social impact film. Maybe I shouldn't say it's Malala. And, um, and we were like so bummed because there, there isn't much you can do three weeks before a film goes out. I mean, we still can and we still might and we're talking to them about doing something with them. But the, the sooner the better because I think that those, those choices matter. Not only do those choices matter, but we can design if we want to learn about how something worked and what worked, we can also kind of build testing and evaluation into the program itself, into the distribution itself, right? So it depends on what you're doing. If you're doing like online media, for example, or you're doing a three-minute film that you're sending out to your mailing list of 500,000, I can talk to you about the way to make that three minute clip as effective as possible. We can hypothesize some framing and some messaging and here's some things you might want to do. And we could test those hypotheses and say, well, let's do two different versions and send half of, you know, send 250,000 version A and 250,000 version B and AB test the click-through reads. And then you can learn for that next five minute video. If you're just doing one long video, you can still do that. You can put out short clips and see how people are responding. So could you talk a little bit more about framing? Um, from my understanding, framing is selecting specific details to kind of increase the salience of the message. Um, how, how do you go about doing that? My favorite definition is the presentation of information in a way that that encourages certain interpretations and discourages others. So framing is often thought about as words, the way we frame messages, but anything I think could be included in that, the presentation of information. So it's also the visual presentation of information. So if you were thinking, sometimes it's simpler for me to think about a piece of paper than a film because there's less things. So it's, if you've ever gotten a business card from somebody, I've seen this more and more recently that people have different shaped business cards. That's, they're kind of, that's a form of framing too. It's not just whether they call themselves CEO or founder or president, which is clearly a frame about who you are or how you're, how you're framing your role in the company. Are you chief marketing officer or director of marketing? But the presentation of the card itself, the color of it, the font of it, all of those things are framed, right? Every, any way that, any choice that we make about the way we're presenting information, that's my definition. It's very broad. I tend to define terms more broadly than others do. But that's the way I think of framing is that the, it's the choice that you make about how you present information and any choice you make has an impact on how that information is received, period. And so when we talk about framing, what we're really saying as like a field or as a science or as an approach, it's just making intentional choices. You're making those choices either way. Maybe you made your business card pink because you love pink. Maybe you made your business card pink because you're really trying to frame your organization as a female facing organization or as a woman, you know, feminine organization. 
Those are both framed. They were just different reasons. I would say if you choose that color because of the impact you think it'll have on the people who receive that information, that's what we typically refer to as framing. And so when we have, when we're making those choices, there's an infinite number of them, especially when you, when you scale out from a piece of paper or a business card to a film or a website or a one year transmedia campaign, it's there. There's just an infinite, infinite, infinite number of choices you can make that you can get buried in. And so I, I don't think you need to, you should stress about every single word or every single thing. You should just look at, understand that you're making choices, that everything you're doing is a choice and where possible, where can we insert, where can we make sure that we're being maximally effective? Our government actually is doing a lot of this work. I just came back. I was in DC last week at a meeting hosted by the Department of Energy, returned veterans and returned military veterans qualify for the GI Bill, right, for, for, to go back to college. They qualify for, for funding. And usually when veterans came back, they would get a, a letter that would say, you qualify for this funding. Click here, or go to this website, or fill out this form to, to get this. And there's a, a psychological theory or a theory in judgment decision-making called the endowment effect. I referenced it a little bit earlier that we value what we have more than what we could get. So they tweaked that message from you qualify for to you've earned. You've earned this educational benefit. Click here, fill out this form to get it. And they found, they didn't see a huge bump, but they did see, I wanna say like a two to 3% increase in the number of veterans that were taking advantage of that frame. Now, every single word in that letter was a choice. But rather than nitpick the entire thing, it was like, well, let's look at where, and that's where working with social scientists, we can come in and go, I just did this this morning uh, with, with something where we said, how can we add a loss aversion message into this piece of material that, that was going out to customers? And so we can look, and there's tons and tons and tons of these different options, but we can look, there are these underlying core social motives, which typically are our desire to matter our desire to contribute, our desire to be recognized by our peers, by other people. When I'm asking you to do something, to give, to support this cause, to be a part of this, um, this movement, whatever it is, to, to do something that doesn't directly benefit you right now, the most successful messages, those frames are ones that are appealing to those core social motives. So how can I appeal to that sense of being a part of something, of making a difference, of contributing, and or what are the key barriers that I'm trying to counter or to address? So especially with the environment, I don't think that the problem is that we have a country of 300 million people that just really don't care about earth or don't care about the environment or care about other people. I think we care and we're busy and we care about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And it's not incredibly clear how my action will have an impact on this big picture global crisis. And so when you look, so when I look at, at key ways that we can, frame and, and leverage social science principles to improve the efficacy of messaging, media. It's how can we address those things? What are ways that we can, we can tell the story that you're telling, assuming you're a storyteller, a filmmaker. 
How can you, how can, how can you tell that story? And how can I, how can we make sure that in telling that story, you're doing as much as you can to get people to connect to the story, to believe in you and what they want you to do and believe that if they get involved, what they do will matter. So because of a lot of us aren't social scientists and you know, most of my community is filmmakers who tend to go with their gut, especially with editing 80%, 90% of the time, I would just think that most people want to know what works. Like most people aren't necessarily interested in the whole array of, you know, possibilities. They just want to know, okay, what in the studies works with audiences? Positive versus negative, having solutions at the end of the film like eleventh hour versus none, like an inconvenient truth. Can you just give us a sample of things that in your studies so far, maybe not conclusively, but are working? Yes and no. Here's the problem: people are really complicated. We're not as simple. You can say that much more cleanly in the physical sciences than you can the social sciences. So I would say a couple things. One thing I would say is, their gut, your gut's not bad. This is like the baby dropping the ball. They're not actually running an experiment. Like, you know, they're not, they're not sitting there with a clipboard. Like we do this. So somebody who has developed some strong ideas about what works is doing something very similar to me. They're just doing it in a different way. It's on a more of a subconscious level. So I think like trust that gut for sure that, you know, you're highly trained in, in learning what works and what doesn't. That's what you did in film school. You just did it in a slightly less statistical way than I was trained. So that's one thing, like my way of knowing is no better or worse than a, a filmmaker's. It, it, I, I find it complimentary. I actually love working with creatives because I find those conversations, they go, why do this? And I go, oh, let me explain to you why you do that. This person, somebody, I just took a meeting with someone last week and they said, um, we're thinking about, about adding an application process to participate in this, this campaign. What do you think of that? And I said, I think that's great. I think ritual is really important. And I talked about this research around, um, Laura King did this research looking at people's sense of meaning in life, their sense that I believe my life is meaningful. And people, when you feel like your life is meaningful, that has a lot of, there's a lot of benefits to that. And you're more likely to, to contribute and give. And so, so having people feel like life is meaningful is, is really effective. So this is where I'm, I'm not answering your question, but I'm answering it. Um, I'm trying to address it. What Laura, what, what they found was that a lot of the sense of meaning and purpose in life comes from pattern and from under, and from ritual. And so they did this study where they showed people 12 pictures of trees, 12 pictures, picture, and then every five to 10 seconds, a picture of 12 trees. And then you did a, some filler task, like, I don't know, draw, color something. And then they took this, this survey on questions about whether their life is meaningful. And in half of the, half of the people the trees were presented in order of the seasons. So the tree was, it was like fall, right? Like colors. I don't know. I'm from LA. I'm not good at this. Colors. And then I think the leaves fall off and then there's flowers. And then I don't know what summer looks like, but they showed them in order, right? And the other, they were just arbitrary. And the people who saw the trees in order rated their life as more meaningful than those who didn't. Wow. And what that gets at is this sense of like understanding, making sense of the world. We crave that. We need that. That's important to us. Now, if you brought those people back in two weeks later, that probably was not a durable mechanism, right? Like, I don't think looking at those 12 photos affected their sense of life meaning forever. That probably lasted all of five to 12 minutes. 
So my answer to that person, so I said, yes, having an application process, creating ritual, creating some sort of meaning. I'm doing this because I got in, creating structures. We respond differently. And no one studied this, but I I think about the implications of this to how we watch television. I love, I love Netflix and Hulu. Like, I don't even have cable. Like, I really just watch, like, instant television now. But I think, I wonder, what does that say about, like, the loss of Thursday night friends, must-see TV night or whatever? You know, there is something about that shared experience. So, so I think that there are implications for a filmmaker there in like, you need to help make sense of the world to these people, you know? So sometimes films, it depends if, if you want people to act a film that just asks more questions than it answers, like a Columbine might not be, it's great. You're getting, you're provoking, you're being provocative. But if your goal is for people to feel like grounded and likely to take action, that is not as effective. That's not a bad way to make a film, but just understand that'll have a reliable impact on the viewer. If they're left confused, they're less, they're probably less likely to take action. If your goal is just to be provocative and to provoke and to get people thinking about this is complex, man, education. I don't know the answers. I just want to expose people to the questions. That's great. If you want people to get involved and join your campaign, help them make sense of it, create meaning. And I do think with the streaming devices, there is a new ritual occurring with the binge watching. It may not, it may not be Thursday night, whatever it's, but it is people share about, Oh my God, I binge watched Battlestar Galactica. Oh my God, I did too. Yeah. And that's a water cooler conversation. And when they're releasing the entire season, that changes things. Like I know I know that Transparent season two is coming out this week. So you're right. Like I will watch it probably quickly because I'm obsessed with Transparent. It's very good. And then we'll have that same type of experience with people because it came, it all came out. It all comes out on November 11th, 10th or 11th. So in advertising, there's this idea of effective frequency and they debate whether it's three times or seven times, but things like um, got milk just do it. Where's the beef melt in your mouth, not in your hands. Everybody's heard that so many times and they insist in advertising that you just want to repeat it. You don't want to go new. You just, you just be the broken record. Yeah. Is that one of the methodologies that um, filmmakers can use? And how does that relate to TV shows that are in your face every week, as opposed to a one-off documentary or feature film? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting that, that specific seven touches thing. Cause I wanted to test that. And so the first thing I did whenever I get interested in an idea is I look in the literature to see, you know, I think of research as like a a cocktail party where there's all these different conversations and you don't just walk up to a group of people and just start talking. You walk up to the group of people and you listen for a minute. I mean, if you don't want to be weird. And so when I have, I think about a research idea, the first thing I do is go to the literature and say like, well, who has found, and I, I searched so much. I cannot find a single published study in the history of the universe on the seven touches. I think it's a marketing adage, but I don't think that's ever been tested. I'm not saying it's wrong. All I'm saying is it's one of those things that everybody knows, quote unquote, send me that study if 
you find it, bcarlin at usc.edu, feel free. Because I searched so hard. I had three students search for me. I was like, find seven touches. And they just kept sending me blogs of like marketing people. And I'm like, no, 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 Google Scholar, like psych info, like find me a peer-reviewed published journal article with data with a p-value of less than 0.05 that shows that seven touches work better than five or nine. And I have never found that. There's liter- there's tons of literature on familiarity. So there is something around, which actually even that, even that meaning piece that I was talking about, right? The more you can create a sense of, of meaning, so creating shared understanding around terms should increase people's comfort and effi- comfort level and efficacy with taking action. So I think there is something about that repeatable message, right? Like I'm not saying that that there's no evidence that a repeatable message is effective. I'm saying the number seven is made up. What, what seems to me at least, and we've done, I would say this comes largely from kind of our comparative case study work. So I've done a lot of, um, of, of, of work looking across what I consider to be successful campaigns and successful media campaigns. And the ones that seem to be successful are ones that are telling new stories, but maintaining a through line. Can you give an example? Yeah. Invisible Children has been really successful at doing that. The Story of Stuff Project has been really successful at doing that. Robert Reich right now is just starting to do that. Morgan's, it's not as issue-based, but Morgan Spurlock and the 30 Days that started out with Super Size Me. And then there was this idea of trying something for 30 days, right? So, so I think you can, there are pieces that you can hold on to. I think another thing that, um, it also makes it much easier for us to evaluate campaigns. Another thing that I think is successful is identifying some unique term, term or terminology. So like waiting for Superman did that with, with some of the terms that they introduced. So they didn't introduce the term charter school, but the lottery and the rubber room, there were a lot of things that they kind of, some terms that they used consistently throughout the campaign. I think that can be very effective, especially if you're extending a conversation that's taking place and then your contribution is kind of, it helps make your contribution identifiable. So there's already been this ongoing, long-standing discussion around public education, and here's how we furthered the conversation. And we have these, these key concepts. And if you can keep addressing those, those key concepts, so there's some like key term or idea that you keep coming back to, but you can use different examples or principles to reference that over successive media, I think that can be really useful. And this is, again, if your goal is continued engagement. Some people want to tell a story, one TV show, one radio program, one film. But if your goal is to leverage that media for kind of an on, on, ongoing, sustained engagement with a community, I think you need to keep creating media. That those, those don't all have to be 80-minute, but you have to keep engaging with them, and you want to engage with them in a way. And so that, that repeated got milk or whatever, those repeated messages, ensure the consistency of your goal across multiple stories or pieces of media so that they don't just seem completely different. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I know that a lot of the measurement of the success of a project tends to be with box office and with audience sizes. Is that a valid measurement for outcome for filmmakers uh, geared towards social change? And what are the, what are the other measurements that yeah. we can accept? That is a great measurement of, that is one measurement of reach. And this goes back to one of the first questions you asked, which was about where do filmmakers or where do storytellers start? And it was with figuring out what your goals are. 
So if your goal is for as many people as possible to see your film, box office numbers are a great way to figure that out, right? Uh, If your goal is to engage as many people as possible in your campaign or with your issue, then box office numbers are meaningless. I think of I, I, I think of reach as how many impressions you get, impressions or eyeballs, and conversion as how many of those impressions convert into participants. And if you have a social change goal, reach probably isn't enough. Probably. But again, I wouldn't say it's right or wrong. It's just based on the choices, right? If your goal is like, there's this thing that nobody knows about, and I want as many people in the world to know about this. So I was talking about Invisible Children's, one of the organizations I did a lot of work with, and they were most famous when, with their, for their Coney 2012 campaign. Now, the broad mission of Invisible Children was, just, was to see a permanent end to LRA atrocities. But the specific goal of Coney 2012 was to make Joseph Coney famous. They were successful. Coney 2012 successfully made Joseph Coney famous. It got 100 million views in six days. It was the most viral message in the history of human communication. It reached 1% of the people living on earth in a week, which is crazy. And it's an unusual goal. Yes. And what they found and they didn't realize at the time was by their success in the proximal goal of making Joseph Coney famous, their longer-term goal, their conversion rates went down. Their longer-term goal of engaging this community to see a permanent end to LRA atrocities was made more difficult because people felt immediately after like they accomplished their goal. Ah. And so their ability to raise funding for their actual long-term goal of seeing a permanent end to LRA atrocities was crippled by the success of their immediate goal to use Coney to make, to use Coney 2012 to make Joseph Coney famous, to bring this to the world's attention. Because funders, because people said, well, you already did what you set out to do. And they said, no, 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 you, no, 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 that's not what we meant. But the damage was done. And by damage, it was a wildly successful campaign. So you have to be really careful because sometimes you have two goals and one might get in the way of another one, if that makes sense. They were significantly less successful in raising funding in after 2012 than they were before. Because the outside world thought, well, why would we give you more money to like raise the world's awareness about this problem? You did that with Coney 2012. You don't need our money anymore. And they were like, but we're not done. He's still there. There's still people that are... Um, that aren't able to live in their villages because of the LRA, right? We haven't, we're not done yet. Please, we we didn't, that wasn't our only goal, but that one goal was so successful. So I think that, that reach is one and box office is one way to measure reach. It's not just box office though. I mean, I think about, I've seen, I could get the exact numbers on this wrong, but there was a time when somebody did a a survey after Inconvenient Truth. It was like four years later, three years later, and it was something like 4% of Americans had seen the film, but 70% were aware of it. So box office isn't telling you full reach. It's just the reach of how many people saw your film, but a lot of people, or your story, but a lot more people might become aware of the issue because your film exists, even if they haven't seen it. A lot more people probably know about 
about the issues in Varunga because it was nominated for the Oscar than have ever seen it or ever will see it. And so, so that, those are a couple reasons why box office, right? It's, it's reach isn't the only thing you want and box office isn't reach. There's a team in the, the psych department at, at USC that's doing some really interesting semantic and syntactic analysis of social media to look at not just are people commenting, but what is the content? What are they commenting? Is it positive? Is it negative? How are people, um, how are people talking about your issue? So not how many comments are there, but what are the comments? And that would be hard to do by hand, right? But we can look, look at ways to computationally assist the manual process, the old school process. And then there's ways we can, there's some things that just good old fashioned data collection, survey data or interviews are the best way to do it. If you want to know if hearts and minds are changing, you can maybe look out. So, and that's where I said, it's easier to evaluate films like Waiting for Superman that have some, some kind of key terms because you can look at, did the conversation change? So you can do a semantic analysis of um, the media sphere before and after this film came out and look at how these terms are, are trending or changing. That's one way of doing it. You can look at your partners. If your film is promoting these four different organizations, then partner with those organizations to collect data. Like we wanna know if we're promoting this, calling this rape crisis hotline, let's partner with the rape crisis hotline and look at how their numbers change, right? Um, how their donations change, how their number of volunteers or interests change. We can, so there, there's, depending on what your goals are, there are a lot of different ways to get at them. So I do think we need to think as I think, a, uh, John Rice, John Rice's book, Thinking Beyond the Box Office. Um, he's talking about marketing, that we need to think beyond the box office. But I think when we think about impact, we need to think way beyond the box office. What, what do you want to do and what is the best way to get that information? So going back to the idea of having one particular goal with the audience and using the example of Coney 2012, how they had their one particular goal of making him famous and then their other goal didn't happen. Say you're looking at something that has many different goals just inherent in the topic. So uh, the project that I'm working on, The Fifth Sacred Thing, basically follows the heroes of the story are a community who are practicing permaculture principles. You know, it's after ecological demise of the earth. They are anti-nuclear. They're living in intentional community. They have completely alternative transportation systems. You know, it's it's telling about a world where it's not just changing a light bulb as the solution to climate change. And Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, is a good example of a title where she hit the nail on the head where it literally changes everything. Now, I think that framing of climate change, that's part of the problem. And that's why people aren't as engaged about climate change as they are about Donald Trump, because it's so such a big issue. So if you have a, if you have a filmmaker that comes to you with a, a huge reach like that and maybe they have a few different goals with it. Where do you even start? Yeah. I mean, they are, they're all like that. There are very few simple things, simple, <laughs> simple so problems or social issues. Right. There might've been a few, you know, in the 16th century, but they got taken care of, right? The ones we have left are pretty messy. Women, the right to vote. Yeah. 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 They're all, we're left with, with pretty, some pretty messy stuff. And so they're almost all like that. I, I think the importance is to identify and be really visionary about what the, the complicated, the, the wild, audacious goal is, and then identify proximal, create a link between the small victories you can establish on the way. Because 
if you just focus on this big, messy, multi-pronged goal, like stemming climate change, people are just going to get like bummed out pretty fast because they're never going to see, it's like the, the battle and the war. You need to show small wins on the way to your larger victory. And so, and just to reference, I wouldn't say that Invisible Children failed in their final goal. They did, I mean, you did see over the, over the duration of, of this organization from 2003 when the boys first went uh, to, and again, I might get these numbers slightly off, but, but approximately, when, when they first made and released that film, there were, I think, 10,000 or something uh, soldiers in Joseph Coney's army, and there are currently less than 200 left. There's somewhere around 150. Uh, one of the critiques of their film is that much of that had been accomplished before Coney 2012 came out. But their thought was, we don't want to stop until it's over. Like, almost stopping a warlord isn't stopping a warlord. So they were in incredibly successful. Um, but it was that making Coney famous confused people. And so they were, it was harder for them to, to get people to see a permanent end to LRA atrocities when it was like, well, you did what you need to do. Now you're done. We don't need to give you money. So all of these are, and even then, seeing a permanent end to LRA atrocities, they defined that, so they created something, and I say that over and over again because it's a great mission, because that wasn't stop Coney, and that wasn't make Coney famous. A permanent end to LRA atrocities is also rehabilitating the communities that were destroyed. It's also reintegrating some of the, some of the child soldiers into their communities. It's, right, it's also a permanent end to LRA atrocities isn't a permanent end to LRA. They were very thoughtful about carefully crafting that mission so that it was broadly inclusive of the big, messy, interrated, interrelated multiple goals. And then one thing they did successfully and other, other campaigns that, that I've seen that are really successful do is they would identify small wins along the way. So when John Kerry became Secretary of State, they did a 24-hour, because they had built up this community, they had done a Kerry Stop Coney campaign. So they said, we want John Kerry in his first week in office to say something about Coney. And so they asked like their hundred, few hundred thousand supporters on Facebook and email, tweet John Kerry, Kerry Stop Coney. And then he did, like day three. He came out and said, one of the things that I think is most important is this thing going on in Africa. And so this entire community, this hundreds of thousands of mostly young people were like, yay, go us. Are we done? No. Did we see a relationship between something we did as a community, as part of this film-based community and the world? Literally one of our world leaders made a statement. And is there a counter, is there another world in which they didn't tweet and carry it. We don't know. There's no counterfactual. I cannot prove, I cannot say that the Carry Stop Coney campaign is the reason that he did that. One could interview him though and find out, right? And there are a lot of lawmakers who said the lobbying efforts of invisible children led to the passage of the two pieces of legislation to the point that they were in the room when Obama signed both of them, um, the Disarmament Act and the, and the um, Rewards for Justice Act. We should be very thoughtful about what that big connected goal is. I think if possible, this isn't a have to have, but I think if possible, you wanna try and come up with some broad sweeping vision statement for what that is. So for your example, it's a world that is sacred, sustainable, and just for all. And that's inclusive of like all of the things. Mm -hmm. And it's mimetic. And that's what I was talking about earlier <coughs> about that, that consistent piece 
that all of your individual pieces can feed into, your individual media pieces can feed into. So you identify what that meta goal is, what that broad vision for the future that you wish to see is, and then make sure that you're identifying specific goals that support that. And then I think one of the things we learned from, from Coney that was the issue is that you need to make sure that you message appropriately that this isn't that this is a part a step a path on the way to that and with with invisible children and coney the problem was their their base got that their message just got too big too fast they weren't that wasn't their their goal they weren't trying to reach 100 million people in 6 days they i mean they were happy about it i'm pretty sure the goal was 100,000 views by december and the film was released on march 5th oh wow that's different yeah they didn't think to say, make Coney famous, but, 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 but wait, 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 wait. It's just a, because they were messaging to their base and their base got it. And so you need to make sure that, and so the lesson from that is, yes, have that big, messy, long-term vision and communicate that beautifully. And then make sure when you have these proximal goals that they're connected, that people see that this is a part of that. And that if we do this, we're not done but if we do this, we deserve to feel good and celebrate because waiting for that to celebrate will give up. It doesn't appeal to those core social motives of like what it means to be human. Like I want to matter and I want to have an impact and make a difference. So like, don't tell me that we can't claim anything as a success until we've systematically solved all of these problems. Let us have some victories and show the path between those victories and the ultimate goal. Have you seen Years of Living Dangerously? Yes. On to its second season. It was on Showtime. It just transferred to National Geographic, Emmy Award winning. I'm sure you have a lot to say about like the different modalities that they're using. Um, they pair celebrities and put celebrities in the place of asking questions like the viewer to find out the solutions to specific problems. So like Harrison Ford uh, in his fighter jet figuring out how the palm oil industry in Thailand is relating to deforestation, which is relating to uh, carbon dioxide being emitted en masse into the atmosphere and then pushing him into the office of the, the president, you know, and demanding an answer. Um, what do you think about that show in relation to impact, impact for social change in terms of how they've framed the conversation differently? The fact that it is a TV show instead of a, a documentary the fact that they're using celebrities differently, the fact that they are looking at a bunch of different issues in one show. Yours is fascinating. I watch yours and I find myself not knowing what they want from me. Mm. And so from a campaign perspective, from an impact perspective, I think yours is filled with misses. But again, I don't judge that because they're making different choices. Showtime probably didn't want to be super in your face like, hold our hands, join our campaign. So I don't judge someone else's choices if their goals are different. If their goal is to get as many people to do as many things, if their goal is to form some global community that's taking action, I would say that there are some, some, some different choices they could make. But others would question the artistic integrity of the show if they made those choices. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm trying to be very... I mean, That's not, part of my question you know, is how do you balance the artistic integrity? Because yeah. it is an artistically amazing show yeah. with the messagey parts of it and the impact parts of it. 
without right. losing the artistry. So, and, and then there's this balance again, it's reach. If your goal is to get, is for as many people as possible to learn about palm oil and deforestation, then you don't want the epi- you don't want the show to be so activist that you're turning off a lot of people that would watch it. If your goal is to rally your base and to engage people who might who are kind of environmental and would be likely to do this and push them towards taking action in these specific issues that are being addressed in the shows, then I think I feel like they're doing something in the middle. So I think they're probably environmental enough that, the, but these are just my hypotheses. I have no data on yours, but I think they're probably environmental enough that they're probably reaching a pretty self-selected audience. So they're probably not changing that many hearts and minds, but I think they're not activists enough that they're taking those people whose hearts and minds they already had at hello that were like all that are just so excited that there's an environmental show and pulling us together and turning us into an army that they could then turn on like invisible children did with Coney stop carry. So I actually think they're doing, they're doing neither. But I think that I've read an article with the producer that they, they do want to reach the people that don't have any concept of climate change or that still think that it, it relates to the hole in the ozone because that was the reason why the producers partnered these huge celebrities in each episode. And each episode has a huge celebrity, A-list celebrity. And one of the producers said, I want people to be able to turn on the TV and think they're watching a movie with Ian Summerholder, you know, or Don Cheadle, and then get caught up in, oh, wait, this isn't a movie. What is this? And then they're hooked. So people who haven't the faintest idea about it necessarily, but are interested in the celebrity. And I don't know enough about their audience numbers to know if that's what, if they're being successful in doing that. There hasn't been, I talked to a couple of the, a couple of the the organizations that funded the first season, neither of the ones that I spoke to are funding the second. Um, and that was part of it. They didn't feel like they understood the impact and that, and that, that they didn't feel like that was first and foremost, that they weren't leveraging. So I don't know what the numbers are in terms of who's watching and who's not, if that, if that is what they are doing again, intuition and assumption, they can say that I think we would need to look at, you know, and maybe somebody's doing that. I have not done that. Who is watching? And then you could do some outreach. You could throw out, you know, uh, a, a poll, right. And, and look at people, have you watched this? And if so, what are the impacts or, or what are your thoughts on these issues? It does seem that they're, they're not taking that next step and that's fine. Maybe that's not their goal. And from my perspective, there's a missed opportunity there. But again, I don't think everyone needs to do everything that's humanly possible. Right. Yeah. Thank In you life. for your honesty about that. I feel like they, there's a and they could turn people off if they did that, but maybe they could do that in a transmedia content. I think they could, and they they are. They have a website, but I think there there was a huge community in the environmental movement that were very excited about this show, and I don't think that it's lived up in terms of actual climate action, activism, advocacy impact. Gotcha to the promise. People's favorite shows, uh, you know, Criminal Minds is in, I don't know how many seasons now, The Walking Dead, Game of Thrones. I personally feel like we're watching very, very dark themes now, in especially in TV. Do you think there is such a thing as mindless entertainment where people just tune off after work? Or is it still having an impact even though nobody's doing any sort of case studies? <laughs> Well, and we are actually, so the Lear Center, we have a program called Hollywood Health and Society. Oh, wow. It's been around for 15 years. 
And it was initially seed funded and still is funded largely by the Centers for Disease Control, who found that people are getting some poll that found that people are getting most of their health information from television. And so CDC was like, well, we can complain about that all we want. Or we can do something about it. And so let's make sure that we improve the health information on television. And so Hollywood Health Society has been doing that. Um, not story, this isn't product placement. It's not health messaging placement, but it's working with television shows. So a lot of HHNS does, works with, you know, almost any show that has doctors on it, obviously, like lot. House and ER and what all those. Um, and we'll also kind of inspire storylines. And, and we do some testing. So for example... There was an episode of the show Numbers is one of these shows where like they use math to solve crime, I think. And uh, and there was some episode where the the content, the show was about uh, some somebody was stealing organs. And there's something interesting there about organs and organ donation. And so at the very end of the show, they had like the main character sitting around a table and they're like, oh, good job for solving that crime using math. This is a fantastic concept for a television show. Also, you know, maybe if more people donated organs, we wouldn't have, there wouldn't be this market, black market for them. I donate organs. I have this donor dot. Do you have this donor dot? And they did this like little cheeky piece at the end of the show. And then they looked at, and we saw that the rates of people, we looked at like Google search terms. We could see that the number of people, again, I'm talking about a lot of things that I'm like, I don't know exact details. I'd have to look them up, but the week before, I'm pretty sure what we did was the week before we showed a PSA about organ donation and we looked at like the rates of people increasing, like searching um, at that week. And then the following week was this in, so it was the same time slot. So you want to control as much as possible, right? Same time slot, same hour. So showing a PSA during the commercial versus having the show about organ theft. And then this little thing at the end about, no, oh, you should donate. Here's your donor dot. And that that's more effective. Um, and so we do a lot of, a lot of that work at Holland Health Society. And I, I would say, no, there's no mindless entertain. There's no mindless entertainment. There's, I mean, again, there's. This goes back to that framing piece. Information. It's you're either doing it on purpose or you're not, right? In any television show is sending you information. You are gaining information from any television show. Whether the show is intentionally trying to educate you, and that's not the only example. Hollywood Health Society is doing a bunch of stuff like that. You can think of one of the characters in Glee was in a car accident texting while driving. Um, Kristen Bell, uh, who's a big support, was a big supporter of Invisible Children, had an episode of Veronica Mars about child soldiers. And at the end actually said, if you care about this, a lot of times in episodes, you'll see at the end of the episode, they'll say, we talked about texting while driving. Or this episode, there was a lot of 90210 episodes where like somebody would drink too much and they'd say like, or be sad and they'd go, are you suicidal? Like call this number, right? So a lot of it's overt, but even when it's not, it's always happening. I use clips from Friends and Seinfeld when I teach undergrads all the time because there's so much, and I'm just taking something that was in this mind, quote unquote, mindless comedy and going, no, no, there's something to be said about in here about the nature of altruism and what giving means in this episode of Friends where, you know, Phoebe inadvertently put Joey on television when she was trying to, to support public television because she thought I couldn't do, I want to do something good without feeling good, which is really testing out Kant's categorical imperative. And they never mentioned Kant and there was no like, right, reference to it. So I don't think it's possible at all for any information. So kind of thinking about mindless entertainment and going back to this theme that we've gone back to a few times around framing, we're always communicating. We're always educating and informing. It's just the level of thought and intent that we put into it. Whether we're having a conversation with a friend, 
or whether we're making a eight season television show, we're always sharing information and we're always receiving information. And if you, if you have something that you care about enough that you want to use the way that you communicate with others to engage them, to take action, there are options, but you're always doing it, whether you think you're doing it or not. Is there any, and this is the last question I could talk to you all day. Is there any evidence that fictional pieces, be they film or TV, are more candy-coated and thus the message goes down easier than uh, documentary-style pieces? Yes. There's a, a psychologist named Luis Sabido, who, and the research is often called the Sabido method, who did a lot of research, I'm going to say 20, starting, starting in the 80s, uh, looking at storyline integration, largely into serial soap operas. And they'd done a lot of work more in South America and other countries. Albert Bandura, who's one of the most famous living psychologists, or living or dead, um, has done a lot of work with Lisa Bito in this this area as well. And that story, and so they've done a lot looking at like, yeah, storyline integration can be very, is very successful because you can think psychologically, I'm, if I'm connected to these characters, I can empathize with these characters versus, you know, domestic abuse is bad. Versus watching a show where this person that you care about, because we care about people in the TV shows we watch, is going through something. And they've even drilled, they've even done some science on the best way to do that. They find that you're most likely to convert people around, they've done this with issues of like domestic abuse, um, getting people in Africa to wear condoms and be tested for AIDS and HIV, is you don't actually want the the kind of hero of the television show, because you already think they're perfect. They're like the high bar. What you want is like the more normal, nuanced person. You want the bad guy to convert. Ah. Is that if that makes sense? So you want somebody that's a little more relatable to convert because if like on most of these TV shows, right, there's the perfect person. You're like, oh of course that person like is got to whatever is, isn't beating his wife or is wearing a condom but like if you show a change of heart and that Sabido method is really for like serialized television because you're telling that story over time. But even little things like the integration of the organ donation in the show about math was more successful. They were more tied in. They were watching. They were engaged. So I think there's a, a lot of evidence of that. That doesn't mean that we should all, you know, we should stop making documentary films. Uh, I think, again, all of these messages are serving these multiple issues. So it's not what is the most successful. You're, you know, every time you ask me a question about what is the best or the most, I just kind of avoided it and just started talking about research. <laughs> I don't think there is a the most. I don't think there are recipes. I don't think there are simple answers. I do think there are reliable mechanisms. There is a science to this, but the science isn't the same as a recipe book. The science is like, how can we do it well? And how can I choose to make what I'm contributing to this issue I care about as effective as possible, knowing that other people will. So maybe narrative, if you did an experiment, the narrative would edge out, but they both fit in this world. They both have a place. We shouldn't just be doing one versus the other. This was Gung Ho Eco, and I'm your host, Maya Lilly, speaking with Beth Carlin of the Norman Lear Center. You can tune in each month on SoundCloud, iTunes, or at my website, mayalilly.com. Thanks for listening. Gung Ho Eco.